Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE is a catalyst for change in the engineering industry, and one of the biggest ways we inspire that change is through our annual SWE Conference for Women Engineers and Technologists. This year's conference, WE21 in Indianapolis, Indiana, will help attendees at all ages and stages learn, connect, and grow. Join us for three days of networking and relationship building, over 250 professional development sessions, three inspirational keynotes, and a career fair featuring more than 300 exhibitors. Let's aspire to inspire at WE21, October 21st through the 23rd. Head to we21.swe.org for more info and to register. Hi, I'm Rachel Morford, President of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Jenny C. Stevens, Director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University. Additionally, she is the Dean's Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy. Director of Strategic Research Collaborations at the Global Resilience Institute, and a member of the Executive Committee of Northeastern's Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program. She is an educator, a social justice advocate, an energy expert, and a sustainability science researcher. Thanks for joining us today, Jenny. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. With that list of accomplishments, I'm really excited to talk with you this morning. Can you tell me a little bit about what initially sparked your, or inspired your interest in STEM? Yeah, so from an early age, I was very interested in the environment and really with a human perspective. And so environmental science, environmental engineering was intriguing to me. And I really initially was concerned. I'd read about how like the next world war might be fought over water. So I actually began my studies and interests focused on water and aquatic chemistry and wastewater treatment and and those kinds of issues. And then throughout my career have, have kind of shifted gears into thinking more explicitly about the climate crisis and the transition transformation that's needed to move us away from fossil fuels toward renewable-based future. So that's what my focus of my work at this stage is really about. Which is a good lead into my next question. You're a leading expert on energy. What do you see as some of the challenges faced by women and other minorities in the energy sector? Yeah, really interesting question. The energy sector is very male-dominated and There are all kinds of challenges in terms of getting into the sector and kind of the challenges faced in the sector. But there's also one of the things that I've been really recognizing in my own career is that the challenges are not just the barriers for people entering the energy sector, but also the lack of innovation and imagination when we have sectors that are dominated by one, a narrower representation of the population, like white men. So what I really have come to appreciate in my own career and based on my own experiences as a woman, often going to energy conferences where, you know, there could be hundreds of people there 
and literally, you know, a table full, maybe 10 or 12 women in the room. And we'd often get together and have lunch together and, and recognize each other. And I realized that we, the women in the, in the space really brought different perspectives, different experiences and different priorities. And there's actually social science research that also shows that women and people who are non-white have very different perceptions of risk. So that's why really diversity is so important so that we are creating teams that really come up with the best ideas and creative and innovative approaches to the big societal challenges that we're facing. Absolutely. I imagine a lot of our listeners can really relate to being one of the only women or or a group of women at a conference. I know that we've had a lot of discussions as a diversity organization about the importance of those different perspectives, but I hadn't heard the comment about different approaches to to risk. I wonder, do you talk about that in your new book entitled Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy? Yes. So my book is really culmination of a lot of different experiences and and research and different ideas about trying to understand, first of all, why we've been so ineffective and inadequate, really, in our response to the climate crisis. I mean, we can see the disruptions around the world with regard to more frequent, intense weather and extremes and and climate disruptions, yet we continue to rely on fossil fuels and perpetuate our systems that are contributing. And this has been really going on for decades. So the argument I make in my book, and I have all kinds of examples, is that we need diversity among those who are making decisions about climate and energy in order to be more inclusive, in order to get to the bigger societal transformations that we need that goes beyond technological innovation, but we also really need social innovation. And we've unfortunately been kind of limited in our approach so far by focusing quite explicitly on kind of a technocratic way of thinking about decarbonization and greenhouse gas emission reductions without thinking about like the social change that is possible and what a transformation away from fossil fuels to renewable energy really means and what are the possibilities and the potential for changing the way society is structured and in particular, the concentration of wealth and power. I write quite a bit about that in the book about how our Fossil fuel interests have really been strategically investing to encourage us to get, be confused about the science of climate change and be resistant and think that, oh, it's not possible to have a fossil fuel free or reduced fossil fuel reliance, whereas it actually is possible. And there's all kinds of co-benefits, other, other benefits to society beyond climate change. So what I think is really important for us to recognize is that there's a lot of conventional patriarchal leadership which and and thinking that continues to concentrate wealth and power 
rather than what I call for is an anti-racist feminist kind of leadership that is really based on collaboration, inclusivity, and representation that is prioritizes investments in communities and really intentionally works to distribute wealth and power rather than concentrate it by focusing and centering social justice, racial justice, economic justice, and, and gender equity. So this other kind of leadership is really acknowledging the power dynamics in so many of our policies and practices and, and processes, and then being willing and able to resist the conventional way of thinking and really be more inclusive and, and understanding about what we design, how we implement policies, can either continue to exacerbate inequities, or it can be an opportunity to transition away from that and, and redistribute power. That's really fascinating. Do you offer tips on how to approach this from a new leadership, this new leadership perspective that might be useful for those who are not in the climate or energy sector? Absolutely. So when I talk about leadership, you know, I think we all, I think of us all as leaders in different ways, right? In our communities, in our organizations. I'm not just talking about CEOs of companies or elected officials. And so we all can have opportunities to, you know, kind of call out and hold accountable the people ourselves and the people we, we interact with, both professionally and personally in acknowledging and recognizing the problematic power dynamics, right, of so many of our policies and processes are, have really, are designed to privilege those who already have privilege and intentionally or unintentionally exclude many other people. So I think we all in our work, in our space, in our interactions, can be aware of and, and integrate into our decision-making and how we proceed these ideas of anti-racist feminist leadership. And in particular, I wanna highlight that while I, I'm calling for diversity of, of people and representation, it's also an open invitation for everyone to consider themselves anti-racist and feminist, right? Um, it's not only people of color who should be anti-racist. White people also need to be anti-racist. And it's not only women who can consider themselves feminists or you know, standing up for gender equity. We need all genders to acknowledge and be on board with trying to resist the conventions that continue to perpetuate gender inequities. So it's really an, an invitation for everybody to you know, think differently about how we can be more inclusive and inviting and open opportunities for people, but also then allow for different kinds of ideas, right? And that's mm -hmm. where the, the exciting piece comes with really the innovations that are needed. I really like that invitation to, to join in an anti-racist feminist leadership style. One of the other important themes in your book is 
energy democracy. Can you explain that concept to our listeners? Sure. So energy democracy is this idea and a kind of a acknowledgement and a vision that we need to move away from fossil fuels reliance to a more renewable based future. And we have the technology to do that. Really, what we need to acknowledge is that there's all kinds of opportunities for doing that as well. And what I mean is we have the opportunity to invest in people and communities in ways that we haven't been for a long time. We can base those investments on social justice and human dignity and thinking about what do communities and families and households need to have prosperous, healthy lifestyle. And then we can invest in ways that allow that through this energy transformation toward a renewable-based future. And, and the reason that renewable energy has this potential of being so transformative, and this is sometimes lost in a lot of the policy discussions, is that renewable energy is fundamentally different than fossil fuels. It is plentiful, abundant. It's actually free, the resource, once you have the technology to leverage the renewable source. It keeps coming, right? The sun keeps shining, the wind will blow. Obviously, there's intermittency challenges, um, but those are those are surmountable with a mix of sources. And literally and figuratively, the idea is that we could redistribute power through this transformation that is already occurring and it's accelerating. So we could move from fossil fuels to renewable energy and maintain kind of this corporate concentration of wealth and power and just have a few renewable energy companies that are you know monopolies and and controlling a lot of our policies or we have this opportunity to invest very differently and and structure our energy systems very differently so that there's local ownership regionally appropriate mix of different renewable energy so it's not just large wind and solar coastal communities could have Offshore wind, wave and tidal energy, inland communities uh, around the world could also have geothermal energy, which is a source that we just have underinvested in, even though it's almost every community in the world has some access to geothermal. So the idea here is that every region of the world, every community actually does have local, regionally appropriate um, renewable resources. And if we were able to structure our policies and our investments in a way to invest in those, and there's all kinds of models in terms of more cooperative and collaborative ways of distributing and generating energy, then we could disrupt this, the way that fossil fuel interests and what some of us are now calling the polluter elite, which are people who are wealthy people who have been profiting from the current system, they actually don't want the change. And they've been strategically investing to resist the transformations that's, that are possible because their own profits and their continued concentration of wealth and power it relies on that. So we need to disrupt this growing inequities and in the both an income and a wealth gap that is just continuing to get worse and worse. And one of the ways to disrupt that is through investing in a more distributed 
heterogeneous energy system. And that's what the whole concept of energy democracy is about. Wow. I think that was something I've not really thought about, the polluter elite. That's a really, really fascinating term to use. I imagine that your discussion about energy investment in regional communities also includes the important topics of housing and job creation. Absolutely. So, you know, conventional, some of the traditional climate policies over the past that have been proposed that have been ineffective over the past decade or so include carbon taxes and specific ideas of goals for different decarbonization strategies. And a lot of that kind of quantitative, technocratic way of thinking about how to confront climate has really missed opportunities for integrating with what every people wake up every day worried about, right? And that includes jobs, economic foundation, and also housing. So there's there are so many examples of inspiring leaders who have been able to catalyze bigger changes because they are connecting climate and energy with the economic precarity that so many people are struggling with. So, and acknowledging that as we invest in renewable infrastructure, we have this opportunity to, for workforce training and and creating new jobs and, and also supporting those communities that have been reliant on fossil fuel related jobs so that their livelihoods are not threatened by this transformation, but it's actually a benefit. With regard to housing, I mean, there's so much. We are in in the United States, we are in a housing crisis. The number of people who are housing insecure, who can't afford rent, who are really struggling is has been increasing solidly throughout the, the pandemic and even before the pandemic. And we really need public investments in housing. And we need to think about housing as a human right, because if people can't afford housing and we are, you know, people are in really dire straits and have to resort to all kinds of different kinds of unhealthy lifestyle issues. And we, it results in all kinds of other challenges. So if we Several members of the squad, including Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, from Minnesota, she has really been a leader in acknowledging that we're in a housing crisis and we need to make major investments in housing. And if we did that, or when we do that, we have the opportunity to invest in clean, renewable energy for those houses and, and you know, zero emission housing with very efficient building design and all of that and kind of contribute to the mainstreaming of the acceleration of decarbonizing our our housing stock. So there are lots of examples of innovative leaders who are, as I said, connecting climate and energy and thinking about the investments that are needed in a different way than conventional climate policy. And that, that also relates to the Green New Deal which is a a framework for thinking about climate policy in a very different way, focusing on economics and job training and focusing on particularly young people, right? We see the sunrise movement and the youth movement. And I have two daughters myself who are in their early 20s and they are 
young people are really worried about the future, not just, I mean, obviously they're concerned about the climate crisis and they are also concerned about their own future and opportunities ahead for them having a stable and fulfilling life in terms of their professional and economic situation. So we really need to be investing in jobs and training for people and creating opportunities in a way that is equitable, because we also have so many communities and families that have been underinvested in for so long. So we need to be investing in to create opportunities and some more economic stability for everyone. As, as you mentioned earlier, really rethinking the entire systemic approach to this sector. Diversifying power shows that anyone working on issues related to energy or climate can leverage the power of collective action. How can our listeners do that? Are there any specific recommendations that you have for them? Absolutely. So what I call for and and really encourage us all to think about is is in addition to our individual choices, right? Like a lot of environmentalism has focused on what you as an individual can do in terms of your own choices of energy use, foods, choices, you know, your own housing and transportation methods. But I also think what's really important is for us to think more systemically about larger societal transformation. And of course, societal, larger societal transformation requires individuals to change um, and be open to change. But we need more people advocating for these larger systemic changes. So we really need to be advocating and kind of aligning ourselves with larger movements, right, that get beyond environmental movement, get beyond any specific movement for for different social issues, but really connect the dots, right? And, And that's where we really have the most power for collective action. And, and that's where chapter one of the book I have titled Growing the Squad. And the squad, as many of your listeners may know, are these four junior congresswomen who came on the national stage in the United States just in the past two and a half years. And they have just transformed the conversations about climate because they've been effective in connecting issues of climate with jobs, with housing, with health and with structural racism as well. And that, you know, and Representative Ayanna Presley, she is one of the members of the squad. She represents me in Massachusetts. She has said anybody who is committed to social justice is, can be, is a member of the squad. So it's an open invitation to, to kind of grow the squad. And what uh, we're talking about there is really thinking big and ambitiously about how the world could be and making, getting involved politically, really advocating, getting, you know, getting to know your own representatives and, and understand with each election who, who really is, is pushing for these kinds of more systemic changes. And then continuing to, to expect and advocate for voting and voting participation. It sounds so basic. 
but really I don't see why we don't shouldn't be able to hope for and work toward 100% voter participation, right? I mean, that's what democracy should be. Yet we have been going in the other in the other direction with all these efforts to actually restrict voting. So these are all things that we can get involved in in our local states, in a, nationally, internationally, depending on where and how you know people want to engage. But there's so much, and there's there's also opportunities no matter where you, where people live to get involved in developing and advocating for more local renewable energy the and resisting fossil fuel infrastructure because the connections are pretty clear and the influence of the fossil fuel industry and interests to kind of encourage all of us to think that there's no alternatives and this is necessary um you know we, it's, we're getting to the point where that line of reasoning is really irresponsible right like we actually can make the changes that are needed we just need to collaborate and form these new multi-racial, multi-generational coalitions of people who would like and, and are committed to working toward a world where that's more equitable and, and sustainable. One of the phrases you used was thinking big and ambitiously. I imagine that that is something that as our listeners are looking at their companies and the teams that they work in and trying to create more diverse, inclusive environments that we would really encourage them all to to take on as a theme, thinking big and ambitiously. Do you have recommendations for how those individuals can work and think work to create more diverse teams and things that they can do? Yeah. So I think the first step is understanding and kind of beginning to unlearn racism and sexism and and where and how these are built into so many of the things that we do, whether it be, you know, interviewing for a job or putting forth a proposal about some of the work we're we're doing or all kinds of, at, at so many levels and in so many ways, there are subtle and some not so subtle ways that certain people are privileged and other people are excluded. And so I think everybody has space and time or needs to create time to acknowledge and learn about how those systemic issues are being, are evolving in their own professional and personal spaces. If any of of your listeners are thinking, oh, I don't see any structural racism or gender inequities. That means that you're actually not recognizing, which means you're probably continuing to perpetuate and exacerbate those trends. So it actually takes a lot of work and intentionality to be continuously acknowledging understanding and then trying to unlearn and challenge the conventional way of doing things when you you recognize that this is not leading to or or this is somehow contributing to you know privileging some over others and so it's not easy and in every 
space if you're if you know you you also need to be brave and courageous i guess right because if to just go along with the way things are done so often we find ourselves just complying right with the way that our mentors or people before us did things right and what we know now is that those approaches so often have led to contributing to the problems that we're in rather than opening things up for more creative and innovative ideas. So there's really so much value and potential for acknowledging and learning and talking about racism and sexism and not being afraid to bring it up and and challenge yourselves and those around you. So I think that's really an important aspect of what we all have have the opportunities to do. Obviously, with those of us who are very aware and <laughs> might be working in environments, especially engineers, where you know it's not mainstream yet, right? And it does mean sometimes bringing up uncomfortable and challenging issues with colleagues. And but I think that's what we all can learn to do better with more comfort and ease and and in ways that are respectful and productive rather than confrontational and and kind of creating more divisions or or hostility or anything like that when i first talk started talking about this what they call the white male effect the idea that i mentioned about how there's social science research that shows white men see everything from flying in an airplane to smoking cigarettes to car crashes as less risky than women or males who are not white. And so that's an argument for why it's so important to have diversity, right? Because we want people to have different levels of perceptions of risk. And one of the things, you know, when I first started talking about that in, in talks I would give or presentations, some white males were really defensive and kind of angry and didn't like the fact that I was calling out trends in the white male population and how that's the number of, you know, the dominance of white men in so many positions and sectors and organizations is a challenge. and. So over time, I've gotten better and writing this book helped me to think about like how to talk about those issues without, you know, creating a lot of discomfort. I mean, some discomfort is necessary, I think, for people to learn and and be challenged and think in a different way, but do it in in a respectful way and make sure that, as I said, an invitation to see things differently so that things can be more productive and creative and innovative rather than see it as a threat. So those are some of the things that I think I encourage everyone to kind of be thinking about in your own context and professional and personal interactions. Wow, thank you. That's a lot of really great advice and recommendations. I'm sure that all of the work that you've done in this area is inspiring some of our listeners. Could you tell those who wish to emulate you a little bit more about your career and how you got from being interested in the environment to where you are today? 
Yeah, I'm a university professor and a and a and a writer um, at this point, and I you know never thought that that would be where I'd where I'd be. I think the real advice and what I've learned in my own experience is is just to kind of follow your passions and see what the opportunities are as you're going along your journey. I you know just knew I wanted to have a science and engineering background, so I went directly from undergraduate to graduate program. I thought I would stay for a master's, but in the program I was in, they actually wanted they wanted people to stay in the PhD program because they didn't really have a kind of terminal master's program. So during that time, both of my daughters were born in graduate school, and it was partly because I was really kind of open to the idea that maybe I wouldn't finish the PhD because some of it wasn't that fun. And so you wouldn't think that, you know, necessarily having children during your graduate time is is a good time, but it ended up working out really well because there was quite a bit of support where I was for women in science and and then, you know, kind of moved on from there to a lot of luck and timing about being in the right time in the right place for the job for jobs that have that were available and I'm thinking particularly about my first professor position and I think then you know kind of playing to your strengths and academia and the and the university research space has really become very interdisciplinary and obviously climate and energy and sustainability issues are at the forefront and so what I have to offer is really an integrated perspective that brings the technical and the science with kind of more social science and policy interests now. So, yeah, I think just follow, you know, it's not a direct path. Nobody really has a plan. <laughs> I mean, some people have plans and move toward them in different ways. But I think increasingly, you know, things are more dynamic than we all think. And I think moving from one step to the next and keep staying true to what you're most passionate about and what you like to spend time with on in terms of issues, but also how you interact with people and what are the opportunities I think are all related to having a fulfilling career that has impact. And I think most of us want to have impact in the world in our careers. And there are a lot of different creative ways to do that. Absolutely. That is so well said. Jenny, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I think so much of what we've talked about has been really inspirational and something that our listeners are going to really take a lot from. Everything from following your passion and pursuing any opportunity that comes around to stretching into areas of discomfort and the importance of advocating for yourself and for your community. And you know, going back to the very beginning in your book, thinking about leadership approach that is anti-racist and feminist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be have this conversation. And I did just want to mention quickly, if any of your listeners are interested in the book, it's called Diversifying Power. And it is available anywhere you can buy books. But all the author proceeds from the book are going to the NAACP's Climate and Energy Justice Program. So we'll be contributing to that, to advancing that work if you purchase the book. So thank you.
for this opportunity. Great. Thank you so much for mentioning that, how to get a hold of your book. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they go about doing that? Thank you. Yes, I have a website, jennycstevens.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Jenny C. Stevens. So I'd be happy to connect with any of your listeners. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm Rachel Morford. For all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Remember to head to we21.swe.org to learn more about and register for this year's conference. 